Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. Living with the Locals was recorded at the 2017 festival. Please enjoy Victoria Haskins and John Maynard discussing early Europeans' experience of Indigenous life with Ray Kelly Senior. Um, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the land um, and the footprints beneath the cement and the, the clay. I think there's a song about that somewhere. Um, it's my privilege to act as host this afternoon for a very important uh, conversation with two of my favourite people. Um, before I introduce those, I'd like to acknowledge all of the many friends in the room. We've seen quite a number of our old friends and uh, lifelong acquaintances. Um, Living with the Locals, written by John Maynard and uh, Victoria Haskins, is uh, an important book. And uh, it's uh, my privilege to, as I said, to um, uh, carry out this part of the uh, delivery of the piece this afternoon. Uh, welcome, John Maynard and Victoria Haskins. Please. Yeah, thank, thanks, Ray. Um, would you like to make an opening remark each before we begin? It's almost like we're on. Oh, just um, thank you very much, um, Ray, and um, I just myself like to acknowledge the traditional owners, the um, Awabakal people on, uh, on the land on which I'm speaking today and, um, and I'm, really, I'm really happy to see so many people here today um, and it's exciting. Yeah, and I'll, I'll add to that as a Warramai man from the other side of the river also to respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners and uh, the land on which we gather today and also it's great to have my my good friend Ray here as, as our host for this particular panel for both Victoria and myself and again um, welcome to everybody for the session and again as as already said many good friends in the audience that we've, we've, we've noticed and met this afternoon. Um, going back to the school of how to, how to um, manage your way through conversations, uh, start off with something light and funny. <laughs> um, John, my grandchildren know John as uh, the Superman. Well, the, the black Superman. The black Superman. <laughs> Get it right, right. It's to do with uh, it's to do with the football shirt. Um, and so, um, interestingly enough, this uh, this book is about a dynamic duo. Um, so, my first question to to both of you, um, and perhaps uh, John, you may start. Uh, tell us about the book, and tell us how it came. Yeah, yeah. Now look, it's um, it was great for Vicky and I to actually work on a on a project, a book together. I mean, we it's very rare for us to be able to work on something together. I mean, I mean, Vicky's my wife. I mean, so for us, <laughs> it's, yeah, but for us to work on a project together is extremely rare. Rare. We are both very busy. I think we've only done one previous article together, and we we did a conference presentation. And this book came. I was approached by the um, the National Library about the the idea for this book, and would I be interested? And because uh, I'd done a previous book on Joseph Lysett, the convict artist for the National Library, and the great people to to, talk, uh, to work with. And I said, yeah, look, but I think it would be good if Vicky was a part of this because this is also a black and a white story in regards to these um, the stories. I mean, that's the, that's the critical thing for us is stories. It always is with Vicky and I and the work we do. Mm. Uh, John's actually sort of being a bit modest because what really happened was the National Library asked him and he came home and told me he'd been asked to write this book. And I said, please, can you ask them if I can write it with you? Because I just love this uh, topic so much and I've, um, been really interested in my teaching to, to teach about the history of white people that lived with Aboriginal people and I've always found those stories really fascinating so it's like John, John go, go and ask them if I can be part of it too. So, Well we did and, and, and they're great people to work with and as I said it is a project, an idea, a concept that we've both been extremely interested in. We've, we've, we've been interested in intermarriage particularly between Aboriginal men and white women um, and our own history is part of that. Yeah, but, we, uh, we, we, we practice our research. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so this this topic greatly interested us. So that, that's where it come from. And um, the library said, yes, we'd, um, we're happy for you guys to, uh, to write this book. And that's how it come about. 
And do you want to talk about how long it took? Or? <laughs> well, I was I was going to say that um, putting the non-Indigenous and the Indigenous perspective was sort of an interesting thing because when we'd written together on intermarriage, John, we were looking at Aboriginal men who married white women and so it was quite easy. John wrote from the Aboriginal male perspective and I wrote from the white female perspective mm. and we had kind of two voices in that article but for this book it was kind of different because John was representing Indigenous perspective and I was representing non-Indigenous but there's also the gender thing going on mm. so um, I found that I was sort of, you know, not writing for Aboriginal women, women but I was trying to look for the women's histories and the women's stories in this and, and John, of course, was looking at the non-Indigenous men and, you know, looking at them through that uh, framework of gender as well as race. Mm. Mm. So, yes, and in terms of how long it took, um, we, we wrote it in a flash. <laughs> 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 so you can elaborate on that one. Yeah, that, that, that's usually my way. But um, we, we began the research in 2014 and, um, and as I said before, I mean, I can't praise the National Library enough because um, they've got fantastic resources and staff and um, the, the library was basically open for us. We had people to get material for us and we, we, we went down to Canberra and spent time at the library on a number of occasions and also from home. I mean, we could just ask for stuff and bang, it would be there. The book is based on material that the National Library hold. I mean, that's where the book come from. It was from their idea of putting together a study. That's why there's people have said, oh, there's, you have a, you've missed people in Western Australia or something like that, but it wasn't that. It was basically what material was available in regards to uh, what the National Library had and, and, and that sort of interest that, that drove us. But we... Um, we researched through 2014 and 2015, but um, we started writing on it um, basically Christmas um, 2015 just, yeah, and, Christmas. and basically draft completed early in 2016 and it came out in November 2016. Mm. Uh, At home we have um, our, our middle room. We don't have a separate um, room for writing. Our, the middle room of our house, which once was a, I don't know, TV <laughs> room or something, um, it's now got our desks side by side. Mm. So John and I sit together at the desks and John's, um, John doesn't agonise over writing the way I do. So he basically went go and he would write and then pass it to me and then I'd go over the top of it and then I'd pass it back. <laughs> Meanwhile, he's mo moving on the next one. So mm. it was kind of like we were just passing things back and forth to each other. And, uh, you know, saying, oh, what do you mean by this? And <laughs> <laughs> where did you get that from? And <laughs> so, yeah, so it was yeah. kind of a, it was a pretty intense yeah, period yeah. of time. Kids didn't get much of Christmas holidays. <laughs> <laughs> I might um, paint a picture here. The desks are side by side. It looks like the cockpit of a 747. <laughs> 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 I go there often just to watch them. Um, and interestingly enough, when you write questions and have questions ready, John will answer them as we go. Uh -huh. So um, the um, let me just lay out the, the groundwork. We're going to at the 40-minute uh, mark, we'll open up for questions. So if we can just keep it light until then, mm. I want to know: Have you got any favourites in terms of the characters? Mm. Uh, in each of the um, stories, each of the stories, yeah. All mm. well, well, oh, right. Well, you know, naturally for me, William Buckley was a standout. I mean, he's he's one that there's a lot of material on. I mean, there was a lot of um, mining through materials at the library in regards to that. But um, uh, Murrungook, um, William Buckley is a very well known story of a man um, that was a convict and went to the Port Phillip. Um, um, uh, convict settlement when they first set it up, the British, and he ran away uh, with three other convicts and one of them was shot and uh, the other two guys, they, um, with Buckley, managed to escape into the wild. But he went on to spend, you know, uh, 32 years living with Aboriginal people. The very early point of Indigenous and non-Indigenous contact, if you like, and he had uh, an observation, an insight into a world that very few people um, had the opportunity to see before full-on impact of um, invasion, occupation, dispossession and all the results coming in the aftermath of that. So Buckley's view of Aboriginal society and culture was um, 
something quite unique. I mean, in saying that, I mean, and I'm sure Vicky will talk more about this as well, the difficulties in, in putting together a book like this is most of this material is from a, non from a non-Indigenous perspective. So for us, and certainly for me, it was going through that sort of stuff and then peeling it back to try and get what the Indigenous observations and insights and also what was being said, because a lot of these accounts were second-hand accounts. You know, Buckley's story was told in second-hand, third-hand accounts, and in most cases, very sensationalised. I mean, for the for the white audience of that time period that um, Aboriginal people were warlike and Aboriginal people were cannibals and Aboriginal people were savages and all of these sorts of stories. So it was important for me and also for Vicky to unpack a lot of that stuff as much as we could in the material that was there to put down a different side of the story. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Well, um, I... I, I a lot of them are really likeable characters, mm. and I was just thinking that when I was reading through it again this morning to prepare how how kind of engaging they all are as characters. Um, but I think my favourite has to be Barbara Thompson, mm -hmm. and I Barbara Thompson I encountered a long time ago, and um, because her uh, she was um, shipwrecked in the mid 1840s. Uh, up in the Torres Strait and lived with the Kaurig people. And she was found about four or five years later and brought back to Sydney and, and then disappeared. But on the trip, the ship's artist, Oswald Brearley, had written, had, had sat down and taken lengthy um, transcripts of conversations with her, like really genuine oral histories um, all the way as they continued on their surveying trip. So there was this really long... Um, record of her life and she spoke really openly to him um, and that was transcribed some years ago and so I knew about that story so she was one that I really enjoyed following up um, and she she was such an interesting character because she was only about 13 when she was um, shipwrecked 13 or 14 and she was about 17 when she was um, found and she really uh, got embraced by the islander people um, and she was really attached to them and she had this really she was a she was a very working class girl she'd um, come out from Scotland as a child with her family and her father was fairly rough sort of character I think he ended up in jail at the time that she ran away from home when she was about 13 um, to be married uh, and then she and her husband were adventurers when she got shipwrecked. But her outlook was so refreshing and she just had this real openness to Kaurig culture and she really talked a lot about the people, the individuals. So you got a real sense of the individual characters mm. of the people that she was with and mm. it was just great fun to yeah. read her stuff. You know, she, like many of them, were, were family. I mean, she had brothers, you know, and... Mm. Um, but it, it, how can you say, assimilated into the family, if you like, in reverse. Yeah, and she had all so. these great stories about how the Kaurig viewed um, white people as well that were really mm. interesting. Like mm. they said, oh, you, you people don't have any feelings. Mm. You know, we cry. We, we are real people. You're, you're not real people. Because she refused to cry at a funeral mm. and they were like, oh, typical white person, <laughs> you know. It was quite interesting. Um, there's other, some of the other characters too had stories like that that really give you a sudden insight into how mm. the Indigenous people viewed non-Indigenous people at the time. And all, all of this, so we've, we've, we've kind of focused on 13 individuals as part of this particular study and I mean these are people that you know either ran away from convict settlement, um, got lost or were shipwrecked and I mean it's the acceptance that these people and the way that they were adopted and adapted into into the local communities and families. I mean, they would not have survived without that, the way they were looked after. And it's, again, their view of how rich Indigenous culture was and, I mean, and how well they were looked after. I mean, and I think um, I've said this a number of times in interviews, I mean, the, the current state of Australia today with boat people, I think we could learn something from that when people are in dire need and people are accepting and bring them into their families and their communities and, and look after them in that respect because of the way they've suffered. And that's, what, that's the way that a lot of these people were, were treated in regards to that. Mm. Mm. 
Um, the question I, I wonder I'm, has been burning for me is that pension for, from white Australia at that time for that sensationalism. Mm. Mm, mm. Can you tell me how you overcame that or tried to work your way through the materials to make some sense of a, a story that lives today? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a, there's a lot of that. And, I mean, one yeah. one is the Eliza Fraser story. I mean, Ricky will probably talk a bit up. more in regards to that one as well. I mean... And, I mean, how Eliza Fraser, how she was brutally treated by these savages and the, the shocking treatment that she suffered and the abuses that she'd suffered and what she was subjected to. When we went back in, when we went back into that material, Eliza Fraser probably spent somewhere between only five and six weeks mm. with Aboriginal people at best. I mean, so when you look at people like Davis, 17 years, or, or Buckley, 32 years, this woman was there for five or six weeks and yet her story is one that's carried greatly as far as um, being covered historically and even through to the present day. Yeah, Eliza Fraser's really a problem. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, she was used very uh, well. Part, I'm not sure how directly she was used, but you might remember in the 1990s Pauline Hanson made a, a whole sort of thing about cannibalism and this kind of stuff. And so and the Eliza Fraser story really feeds into a lot of that really mm. strong racism that was around at the time uh, and um, it it also follows a pattern that was uh, seen in North America mm. at the same mm. time of captivity narratives which were used to justify atro um, atrocities against Native American people in the front in the wars there mm. um, and the Fraser story's got the same function so dealing with that was kind of tricky um, and getting Going through the different narratives that there are of Eliza Fraser is quite, because some of them are actually totally contradictory. Like one of them has that, um, you know, she had a, a squaw mistress who who used to abuse her and enslaved her. And in other accounts, this is her one and only friend who she calls Rabina because they're like poor little lost orphans in the forest and and Rabina looks after her. So there's completely conflicting accounts. But um, we, we also had to be honest about what we were finding. Um, and our aim was really to try to get at um, how that they were real people mm. that we're talking about. Like Eliza Fraser has been turned into a myth, but she mm. was also a real person. Mm. And so were all of these other people. So we we're trying to get at like, well, what was it? What was it like? You know, typical historians. Mm -hmm. How close can we get to working out what it was really like? And well, I remember talking with you, John, about Eliza Fraser and how hideous she was, <laughs> and saying, you know, we've got to face the fact she obviously didn't enjoy being with the Aboriginal people. Mm -hmm. I mean, and we just have to <laughs> recognise that she didn't enjoy it. Uh, but her story was taken up and and inflamed, yeah. and um, you know. Uh, exaggerated to an intense degree. Yeah, well, one of the, well, the the things we come across, her first testament in regards to that was far different to what come later. Well, it was I mean, still it was, negative. Yeah, it was still um, negative, but, but, what but she it said, was... But what she said was they wouldn't let me in their huts even when it was raining. Yeah. So that's what I said, obviously, like it wasn't a very good relationship. But it, was, it wasn't <laughs> as bad as what it got no. later on, which were the sensationalism. But, John, and, and, and Ray, in terms of sensationalism, one of the um, big issues for you, John, was about the, the warfare oh, yeah, aspect. Yeah. You, you should probably talk a bit about that because that's yeah. such a um Yeah, well, that's, that's certainly been taken up, even by people like Geoffrey Blaney, for instance, I mean, with Triumph of the Nomads and later on with his new book, I forget the name of it now, but it was the first edition of that, which was a follow-up to Triumph of the Nomads. And, uh, and, and, and Blaney basically looked upon uh, William Buckley's uh, material in regards to that Aboriginal people were warlike and there were massive battles and it was the great loss of life through these, you know, incredible battles that was responsible for keeping a low Aboriginal population. Now, when you go into the Buckley material, and again, the, the sensationalised accounts, the second-hand and third-hand accounts and going through these, that account, Buckley actually says he never actually saw what was going on at the front. He was kept at the back with the women. And in one of these instances, particularly with these large-scale battles, as the account is given, 
was that Buckley's group was about 150 people and the other group there was 300 and there was a pitch battle. But the end result of this patch, pitch battle, there's only three people that have died. <laughs> I mean, it's quite remarkable that in a full-scale battle you can only have three deaths. Now, quite clearly to me, and I mean, when you're going through material, this is Aboriginal law being practised and someone had broken law and there was a whole process being taken out. And that is covered in some of this stuff that, you know, one fellow would come out to the front and with a shield and then seven others would come out and they'd hurl seven spears and he'd duck and he'd weave and try to, to miss the, uh, the spears coming at him. And again, as I said, Aboriginal law being practised for someone who had either broken the law and was going to be found guilty or not guilty. It wasn't about a full-scale battle or a war in regards to that process. And that was the same thing with the cannibalism as well. I mean, the mm. accounts of which Vicky has just touched on. Again, this was ritual practice. I mean, particularly if this was a senior person, uh, a senior, a much-respected person that had died, and there may be a piece of flesh or, uh, Ray and I were talking about this earlier, or liver or, or fat cut away because of trying to keep the process of this very, very powerful person alive, but wasn't going out hunting people, killing them and roasting them and eating them, which was, you know, certainly uh, picked up by quite a few people that Aboriginal people were, were cannibals. I, I liked the um, story of Buckley and I think James Morrill had the same thing where when they were first met with the Aboriginal people, they thought they were going to get eaten. Mm. And um, so they were like, and then they went through sort of ceremonies where they had laying on of warm hands and all this kind of stuff and mm. it's quite funny reading it as you see that they were expecting to like be served up for dinner. Yeah. So even at that time that's what they had in their head. I, I love it. There's a couple of accounts and I think it's um, Davis again as well. I mean, and they go with the, the group of white people are brought Moral. in. Moral. James Moral are brought into an Aboriginal group and the white fellas are seeing, they see all these Aboriginal people, they put their hands up like in surrender. And the black fellas see this and they say, well, this must be some sort of ritual. <laughs> they surrender as well. <laughs> so you've got these two groups there with their hands in the air. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so surrenders are going on straight across the board. But uh, it must have been yeah. really funny. And that, that same group, morals group, were then brought into the full tribal group. And first off, they were hid. And we were talking yeah. about this earlier. They were placed in the, in the centre of this area and they were covered over with grass. And then there was a great ceremony to come place and all the people were brought in, at which point this group then got these white fellas to jump up. Well, the black fellas were screaming in absolute fright that these white people had just jumped up out of this grass. So it must yeah. have been the funniest thing. And they had to be all calmed down. It was all right, these, these people. Yeah. <laughs> must yeah. have been some great joke. The, the, the first encounter stories are just great. Some of them are just fantastic. And uh, it was a James Morrill that, they sang the hymn as well, mm, which mm, the mm. Aboriginal people kind of gathered them around and gave them a bit of food and things and then um, did some dancing or something for them and kind of indicated that they were expected to do a little bit of performance themselves. And these people have just survived, you know, <laughs> a horrible shipwreck and they're all like near death and so on. They're like, Ugh. And uh, so they end up singing a hymn. Um, wasn't it? God moves in mysterious ways, well, or something, 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 something like yeah, that. So, something so, really so, perfect. Yeah, yeah, something like and, that. Uh, yeah. And apparently, the Aboriginal people were just like oh, totally impressed right. yeah. that they burst into this song. So because that was a part of culture as well. I mean, welcoming in was and that even goes on with the Maori as well. I mean, mm. singing and I mean going on as part of meeting and that sort of stuff. So that was that a part that was a part of culture as part of a welcoming process. So mm. when they did their song, mm. this this was good. <laughs> And actually that makes me think about um, Eliza Fraser's story because um, they they one of the things with Eliza, there was about 11 people um, who were actually wrecked with Eliza Fraser. We kind of imagine her on her own, but she was with a group of men um, and they had, you know, hostile, hostile-ish um, relations with the Aboriginal people that they met in those early days but what they kept doing was that she, strangely enough, right, she's been through a shipwreck, but she rescues two trunks of clothing. So they, they, make, a, they make a raft, but she takes two trunks of clothing. Um, anyway, obviously cl clothing was worth a lot more in those days than it is today. But 
then they, they keep trying to trade with the Aboriginal people for fish. So the Aboriginal people come and bring them fish and they want to trade them with the clothes. And this creates all this problem where the Aboriginal people basically demand their clothes, take their clothes off them, and then kind of go and they, they're even more upset because not only do they just take their clothes, they go and hide them in the bush. But I noticed that they stopped having these unpleasant interactions once they ran out of clothes. <laughs> and, 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 when and then they originally would just give them food and they were like, okay, no more, no more bad stuff now. So that was interesting too. Yeah. It's like, don't give us clothes. <laughs> I, I note um, from the chapter about Buckley that he leads a very autonomous life. He's, mm. he's, he's, in, he's in the inn mm. and yet he just decides, I'm going to leave. Yeah, mm. yeah. You know, and he goes off and lives by himself. I mean, that's an interesting space to, you know, in terms of the way in which we we see history. Like, mm. you know, they're captured or they they have to they have to live un, under these regimes, and yet he's living a solo existence at times. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, he did. I mean, first off, he was living as you know, he'd been looked upon as our Robertson Crusoe, I guess. I mean, and he was living in a solitary um, um, existence, and then the three Aboriginal men. Um, found him and then he was taken in, but he went back again and lived on his own. And then there was um, deaths in his family and then again through the grief that he suffered, he went off and lived on his own again and he lived with a couple of Aboriginal women through that through those years as well. So, I mean, and, and also Buckley, Buckley really did take on um, Aboriginal culture and ways. I mean, he said he was a very, a very good hunter um, and he certainly with fishing, he even brought across his own techniques of fishing as well and incorporated that into the way he, way he was living. Um, and he, he was you know, initiated scars, as it were a number of the others as well, as through this process. And that that's probably another thing about Buckley, which I probably should touch on, and, and some of the others as well, that they didn't open up a lot, and that was one of the things that was levelled at these people, that they were either stupid or, you know, they knew nothing, but it was because of the situation they were in and the cultural knowledge that they had that they weren't going to release a lot of that material. And, I mean, in regards to the process, it's also protecting their families and the, the communities that had certainly cared for them and looked after them and of which they'd become a part of. So, I mean, and Buckley, when he did go back to, to white settlement, there was a, a great gay between, uh, between um, white people and, and the local Aboriginal people, but he was quickly perceived as being a threat and they had to get rid of him because, I mean, he was taking the, the stance for Aboriginal people and speaking out. So they removed him to um, Van Diemen's Land. Um, Mm. Which Lyndall would know probably quite a bit about as well. <laughs> so, Vic, when these people return to the the broader society, mm. what's the is there is there a theme carrying through? Are they are they still con wanting to connect? Do they still have relationships? Do, uh, what do we know about? This yeah, story? it's it's interesting. Basically, these guys that we're seeing and the occasional girl. They're, they're always like just ahead of the frontier. Mm. So the, the Aboriginal and Islander people that they're meeting um, are either haven't had anything to do with white people before or it's very much at the start. Mm. And by the time they go back, um, then it's all on. It's, you know, the colonisation process is actually happening pretty mm. intensely and there's no real space for interaction anymore mm. um so some of them do kind of try and take an intermediary role like buckley buckley gets sent away um moral mm. uh gets threatened you know he, he has a lot of trouble he ends up um strangely enough kind of becoming a a uh inter intermediary for one of the nastiest settlers up there yeah. um which is really a strange turnaround and I think worth looking at further how that ended up happening. Mm. Um, and, you know, uh, Durham Boy is an interesting one. Durham mm. Boy is a really interesting mm. one. That's James Davis. Davis. Mm. So he lives with Aboriginal people for a long time. He's mm. um, with. He gets found at the time of the, the big ceremony uh, where all that tribes came together to discuss avenging the Kilcoy poisoning, which mm. you might know of. Mm. And and that's when he gets brought back. Um, and for a long time, he's very um, 
surly. In fact, he's basically surly for the rest of his life and mm. the, the white people don't like him at all mm. and they say, you know, he's no better than a black fellow and he's supposed to have an Aboriginal wife and family that he keeps in contact with but it's all very mysterious. mysterious. But then um, when we were researching it, we found some evidence he gave in a commission on the native police and the things he says about Aboriginal people are really... Um, negative, mm. you know, he says, oh, I wouldn't trust them farther than I would f throw a cow or something like that, something mm. really strange. Mm. Um, but but they always treated me really well. Mm. Uh, and he, sa he basically says um, it's not safe for any white pe person to go near Aboriginal people, just stay right away. So, you know, how to read that, whether he's just protecting them or he's kind of a bit loopy or what mm. but but, mm. but there's basically there's not this is it's really sad because mm. when they do go back it's like the chance has gone mm. the chance for a different relationships have gone mm. and some of them come back wanting to they come back representing the indigenous people saying like Murrell said they just want this bit of land if you could let them have that that would be fine mm. um but no Buckley, Buckley did the same. I mean, he, he was a candidate. Uh, recalled as saying, you know, I'd wish the white people were all gone. It was just given back to the black as it was in the past. You know, and, and and as Vicky said, a lot of these stories. I mean, it, it is sad because these people really have no place. They're not back in the in the Aboriginal world, and there's no. I mean, Paletti is a lonely figure. You know, Barbara Thompson disappears mm. basically from you know from um, um, any space. Um, so a lot of these people, I know I said Buckley was moved and um, they wanted to be out of the road in some respects. So a lot of these people were in that space uh, were, you know, not mm. in a lonely sort of space. Mm. Mm. Um, a whole new take on the on the saying Buckley's chance. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, that's right. right. <laughs> um, just returning to the National Library, um, you spoke about working with the... Um, so tell us about your work inside the, the library. Um, and what was that like? And we've got a couple more minutes before yep, we'll open up to, right. to the floor. Yeah, look, again, I, I've, I've done uh, well, this book with Vicky and the, and the previous book, um, with the Joseph Lyser book with the National Library, and I just can't say enough of them. Just fantastic. Susan Hall and Joe Carmel, who two, two of the people that we work very closely with, and all the staff. And, I mean, if people to see this book and also the, the Lyser book, the design team, at the library, just fantastic. And as I said, the resources they can make available for you, they're, they're beautiful books and the images that they've got and they can make use of. I mean, it's just fantastic. We were, you know, so, and great people to work with. Yeah, it was, it was really, it was kind of a, was, I, I was walking around the National Library, like we took turns, we went down together and then we kind of took turns because of this thing about having kids. So, <laughs> um, you go down to the National Library and spend a few days there and be pottering about, and I'm just like, God, this is the life. This is really the life. I just want to be a historian that writes for the National Library because it's just that, you know, they look after you and you've got access to all this incredible material and, you know, it's it's really nice. I, I was down there the week before last, and again, it was on a different project, but I just told them that you know, I had to come down and get some material and... Bang. I mean, it's like the red carpets rolled out. I mean, they run around, they get people getting the material for you. Got they have a lot of volunteers there yeah, too um, yeah. who are people who, you know, love history and, and mm. love libraries and love research. So I might send, I might realise, oh, I, you know, there was a, a, some old book by one of the guys that found Durham Boy and I needed to get hold of pages 37 to 39 or whatever. And so I'd, I'd ask um, Joe, could you could you manage to find this? And like within a day, it'd be scanned and back to me, and I'd be like, oh, that's great. Oh yeah, we've got really our volunteers did that, so mm -hmm. that was very that was really great. And I must say, Ray's been to our place a lot over the years as well. I mean, Vicky and I have to say we're book addicts. I mean, our place is wall-to-wall -wall books, both of our, beside our beds are books. I mean, the lounge room's just all books. I mean, the kitchen's books. We've got a garage full of books. I mean, but we just love being able to put our hands on resources and, you know, stuff like that. I mean, I, I guess in some sense collectors of of history. Mm. And we love mm. um, spending a time in, in, in second-hand bookshops and bookshops everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and seriously... Um, the last big flood, the Pasha Bolka flood. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. 
half of them went, and then, so they've just <laughs> well, been we spending lost their 3, time replacing them. We now. actually had to count them. It was 3,000 books we lost, but we've replaced them. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't replaced all the ones we lost, but we've got no. probably another 3,000 back that we've got since. Yeah, but we, we, actually, it was 3,500 books we lost, and I lost 20 years of papers. And we live at yeah, Hamilton. that was worse because he had incredible papers from oral histories and things from all around Australia that have gone. Uh, it's it's, it's heartbreaking. Um, you know, and uh, yeah, <laughs> it took a long while. To, I don't actually. I don't think I've ever gotten. Over no, there. no. We still, we still like. Sometimes might be looking for a book at home, and they'll be like, "Oh, where's that book? Where's my flood victim?" Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you, and you have books. I mean, through my life, that I've had people sign, and I lost those books. I mean, one. I mean, I, I recount this one often. I, Lionel Rose signed a book for me at the old store in 1968, and I lost that book, but I saved the page with Lionel's signature on. Then I got that book back and stuck it in. <laughs> so, but, um, but there was a lot of books that I lost that were signed, which I couldn't uh, save or replace. I mean, it was, it was really heartbreaking. <laughs> it's, um, it's fairly common to see John and uh, Vicky walking along with a bag full of books. <laughs> It is. It's really common. Look, um, thank you. I think um, I'd like to invite questions from the floor um, to our authors. Um, So if you have a question, uh, I think this gentleman up here has got a microphone. Microphone, and you can come up the front and speak on the microphone. I think that's the go, is it? Mm. Is that okay? Thank you. (laughs) All right, we've got one. Is it working? Yeah, it is, uh, yeah. All this research you've done, the books you've written, is it going to get into schools? Is uh, it? Going to get into our schools and our young people. Oh, well, we hope, hope so. I mean, uh, I get lots of invitations from schools, I mean, to speak, and I mean, um, and I'm quite some years ago, Ray and I were a part of a, a, an, an Aboriginal education book that was put together for teaching in New South Wales. I mean, and there was myself and Ray, John Mundine, John Lester, Gary Foley, Larissa Berent. Um, you know, there was... I, know, I, can't now. I was in there. Yeah, you, yeah, you were in there. But <laughs> that was a great book. But, I mean... Um, Gary Foley rang me up and he said, I'm going to ask him to get that book down here in Victoria as well. I mean, and those sorts of materials are critically important in schools. I mean, I have to say, I mean, I, I look back at my life, I mean, and Ray would be the same, and we've seen big changes in our lives. I mean, I, I come through a school system in the 50s and 60s where there was no Aboriginal history or culture. We've seen incredible changes. Still a long way to go. Um, you know, and as I said, I look back to my time and there was just nothing. There was nothing there. So we have made changes and, um, you know, we've, we've got to make a lot more. <laughs> Any more questions? Uh, yes. Um, if you'd like, I'll just... Yeah. Well, I just, as you're talking, I was just thinking about the two Australian novels I've read about these kinds of stories, which mm. leads by such a wide... Mm. Remembering Babylon, why I've yep. read mm. I just, you talk about sensationalism and all that, but... Um, well, I mean, Eliza Fraser with the uh, Fringe of Leaves is such that mm. that book's had such a big impact. I mean, I don't know about you, but I had to read that one at school. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of my high school textbooks. Um, and Eliza Fra- I, I found Eliza Fraser frustrating because there's so much that's been written about her, but mm. when we were researching it, it's a lot of it is really about how she's been represented. And it it took a lot it really took a lot of work to try to even work out where she landed. You know, <laughs> some really basic stuff about where she was and, and the names of the people that were with her and that kind of thing. So I feel like there's been an overemphasis on um the way these people have been imagined. <laughs> um that it's kind of overwhelmed the history of it. Mm. Um, 
And the history, I always think, like, I am a, I'm such a, you know, I don't know, committed historian. I just think the true stories, the true stories, and I do realise that we can never know what really happened, but the, this, the history is stranger than fiction mm. and the real stories of real people are so much more, to me, um, powerful and can can change the way we do things than the story. Like the fictional narratives are often trying to, um, well, it is trying to make a it is trying to make a very good a good story, um, but it it's uh, it doesn't tell you like how it actually was. Mm. Um, so I mean, I, I read Re- Remembering Babylon as well, which I really enjoyed. I thought that was a beautiful book and. That one did come closer to the truth of Morrill's story, whereas mm. Fringe of Leaves was just, mm. you know, an <laughs> awful book. Well, um, <laughs> it was awful when I first read it, and many years later, so like it's still an awful book. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the the really powerful thing is that this was um this was a real opportunity that was lost, mm. and I don't know if the fictional representations capture that mm. they more seem to be about what does it mean to be us or something like that and I, I that to me isn't as powerful as the as the historical mm. record any thoughts um, no I think she's covered <laughs> yep very good <laughs> look I the, yes the gentleman is yes sir I'm quite, I read the, that wonderful book about Hamilton There's actually there was a, a new book out that was recently done by Alison Cadzo and Shino on guides and Aboriginal oh, guides yeah, yeah. and the impact of them on ex- exploration. I mean, I think that was Aboriginal history, though, as a journal, it wasn't the book. But there's the Aboriginal people have certainly made an incredible impact on on people in that regard. I mean, so that's a, another side of the story. And I mean, you know, we've, we know the accounts of Blacksell and Wentworth and Lawson going across the Blue Mountains, but they were going across an Aboriginal highway, basically. I mean, mm. Aboriginal tracks and the tra- uh, trading routes around the country. So, and Aboriginal guides were, you know, are, are very much a part of that process. Um, yeah. But in many instances um, were, were missing from the story. I mean, with Flinders' story as well, you know, going around Australia. Yeah. Um, well, when we were first looking at doing the book, uh, we were, John and I were sort of talking about talking about, you know, sort of more everyday living with the locals' stories. Mm. Mm. Um, but in the end, going really on what the National Library wanted and what kind of resources they had mm. we decided to build it around the narratives of these quite well-known individuals or relatively mm. well-known individuals that we could sort of flesh out the full a full narrative of mm. um, so we moved away from that mm. there's there's sort of there's little touches in there um, Bum Bowie's an interesting character right at the start. That's John Wilson who uh, once he served his time he went off and lived with the Darug people and they seem to want him to, to act as their go-between. Mm. Seems like that's what they were doing. Uh, and then you get this sort of idea of this interaction and, and it comes in Durham Boy's story too that there were like 2,200 convicts at Moreton Bay and in this very short period of time, 500 of them ran off and lived with Aboriginal people. Oh, so it's yeah. like there's actually a whole <laughs> thing going on, <laughs> which, which we didn't spend a lot of time writing about. There, there was a, a camp up here at um, Port Stevens, Stevens yeah. uh, where uh, convicts kept running away and set up an Aboriginal, like they set up with Aboriginal people, but it was very much a hybrid sort of community because mm. they started growing potatoes and 
They, yeah, that was on Throsby Creek over yeah, here. Throsby I mean, that was Creek, a, yeah. But, I mean, the ones that ran away to Port Stephens, these guys married, they had kids, and when they went back as well. So, you know, but, yeah, but we, we didn't have the kind of resources <clears throat> to really flesh out those stories <clears throat> in the same way we could do with their individual stories. So the book's really organised around the individuals. <clears throat> I wonder if I might just return to the conversation about... Um, appropriate uh, or putting a book like this in into schools uh, and talk about the education system you've both got um, you know uh, incredible uh, work with comparative studies overseas mm. how are we tracking mm. as a country in terms of recognizing that earlier history compared to let's say America or, or somewhere else because um, there are some tough subjects obviously mm. that we'll, we'll need to deal with sometime in the future Mm. Can, have you got any thoughts about how we track as a country? Well, I don't know what I don't know what John's going to say, but I I feel like when I go to America, I'm kind of amazed by how ignorant American <laughs> white Americans are about Native American history, mm. and I'm like, oh, this is this is different. And it's um, like when we first when John and I first went to America, um, remember we were listening to the radio and they, they were talking on the radio about where did the word Massachusetts come from. Mm. And all these people are ringing up with their stupid ideas. And I'm just looking at John going... They're idiots. How can they, how can they not realise <laughs> well, that it's an Indian name? Like, yeah. you don't even have to know your history to be able to tell that. Um, yeah. But I think Australians, uh, uh, we've been much more, since the 70s, yeah. um, accustomed to thinking about it, but sometimes even, um, you know, if you go looking through Trove, I don't know how many people here are Trove addicts. <laughs> You can find some stuff even back in the newspapers of people writing about, like, ex exposing the truth. I think one one thing we get in Australia is people saying, oh, why weren't we told and oh, how, how could – and it's like, yeah, but we're repeatedly being told, so I'm not really <laughs> sure what's going on there. So but I think, I think that's a shift in politics as well. I mean, the same thing in the States in regards to that. I mean, I remember saying to Native American friends over there, I said, look, and they are invisible. I mean, that's a, there's a lot about African Americans in the press and stuff like that, but Native Americans are virtually invisible. Even the you know, the pipeline in um, South Dakota, mm. North Dakota, sorry, at Standing Rock. I mean, how that has been made invisible through the mainstream press is just amazing. Um, but I've said to a Native American mob over there that you know, in Australia, we get a lot of press coverage. I mean, you know, 90% of it might be negative, but we get a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but the the reality is for them they are invisible in the in the countersides of that. So which is a yeah. Know. I don't know about education though because we've we've got two now just in early high school and um, I'm teaching at the university so I'm kind of going to them and as I'm writing my lectures I go have anyone taught you about this mm. have anyone taught you about that because I'm teaching first year so I'm trying to get what they might have already learned and they're not getting they're not mm. learning any of this at mm. school mm. they're not learning any of it at school so I'm a bit like oh that's interesting and there's been a shift too and I think in as far as history is concerned I mean we come through a I mean for me a really enlightening period in the 70s and 80s where I think we were on the threshold of something quite exciting mm. politi politically and also historically and, of course, during the 90s, that was turned on its head and we've gone back the other direction. Right. And I think, I mean, a lot of things could have been resolved through that process. It was a very exciting time. And history, and certainly Indigenous history, was a very important part of that at that particular point in time. And sadly, we missed an opportunity and we've gone back the other direction. We've got another question. I think it's That's a pretty good idea, isn't it? <laughs> I, I can say in response to that, my next project with the National Library is the big book about Indigenous history, which is aimed at primary school students. And I'm the editor of that and Bruce, uh, Bruce Pascoe. So that book will be out, I think, in 2019, the big book of Indigenous history, but which is aimed at primary school students. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's got to be online. <laughs> it's got to have an app. <laughs> <laughs> We've got about five minutes, so any more questions? Somebody? 
Yoksa sattı mı? Thank you so much. Uh, I'm just wondering about the. Uh, it, it seems the indigenous communities were very welcoming of the people that you've treated. Mm. Um, and is that is that a bias in the historical evidence? In that, if they weren't very welcoming, if they put a spear through them, mm. there wouldn't be the same stories or records or the person coming back after 19 or 35 years to tell their story. Or do you think, indeed, that that the indigenous groups were really um, you know, as you were saying, in terms of refugees, that they, they took a different attitude than perhaps the European societies did, that if there's a stranger who's in need in your midst, you help them out. No, you wouldn't. I think the historical record shows very clearly that they were really very welcoming. Mm. And uh, there's... I don't think we really came across... I mean, I see your point about you know you wouldn't hear from the ones who got speared, but there there was there was some stories there like Buckley uh, was told. So Buckley ran away with another fellow, and I think he ran away with two, two. fellows. Well, he and, ran and away they, with three. One and, got yeah, shot. And they, yeah, one got shot as they were leaving. So you know, mm. um, but and that happened with the ones who went to, to um, Port Stephens too. Yeah. But. Um, So he ran into some Aboriginal people later who told him about one of the people he'd run away with had ended up with some Aboriginal people but had been speared mm. because he'd been taking liberties with the women. Mm. So, and there's a couple of little little stories like that in amongst them and they often say things like they were very careful about their behaviour with mm. Aboriginal people. So the people that were coming back generally like, were well-behaved guests. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. maybe the badly behaved ones didn't get the yeah. same reception. And, the, the you know, the Fraser story where um, they, you know, from what you can work out, they, they did get, um, they weren't exactly welcomed. Um, they also didn't behave themselves too well. So uh, one of the guys there, Yulden, said, are my fellow men kind of brought, some of the, uh, they, they, they were getting, you know, rocks thrown at them. And he said, well, they were kind of bringing it on themselves by the way they were acting. So. Mm. I, I think certainly the, the instances of um, um, women, Aboriginal women, are certainly brought about a different response, as Vicky said. I mean, I've actually often thought about Edmund Kennedy up there with Jackie Jackie in Queensland when he was beard. I often thought in my mind, What was happening to Aboriginal women at that particular point in time to bring on a response like that? So I think those sorts of things certainly brought about a different... Um, there's the Barbara Thompson story too, which is interesting because she tells uh, one of her, you know, good yarns is when she talks about an older woman called Yuri who she kind of didn't get on with that well <laughs> and Yuri got angry with her because she was making her a ground oven and she didn't invite Yuri to share and there was this idea in etiquette that when one woman makes an oven, it's too big for just her food. So she's meant to invite other people to share it. And Yuri got angry that she um, hadn't done that, had overlooked her. So she chucked a shell at her, a large shell. And um, Barbara Thompson picked it up and went and filled it up with water and went back to her and tossed it in her face. <laughs> and then Yuri jumped up and um, started yelling at her and, And then Barbara Thompson grabbed her by the hair and started punching her in the face, right? So she's getting up in this nice battle. She said all the women surrounded her, including Yuri's daughter, and were calling out to her, Guillaume Perky, which means Guillaume was her name. Perky means hit her. So they were kind of like egging her on to hit the older woman. And um, and then she was rescued by her, her father. Mm. Um And but everyone, she said everyone took her side because she was a stranger. So even though she'd done the wrong thing, she shouldn't have been punished because she was a stranger and she didn't know. Mm. And the older woman was at fault for not having um, understood that she didn't know the, the etiquette. Mm. 
Yeah, and the older man who had basically adopted her as his daughter. I mean, he raced into the scene. What are they doing to my daughter? You know, mm-hmm. How dare they so, attack my daughter? <laughs> so, so, you know. It might have been a bit different with her because she was such a young girl. Too. Yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah, so, that's true. Yeah. We're getting towards time. There we go. Yep. I've still got room for one more question or two. Rob? Hang on. <laughs> and um, friend behind there. Go ahead. Thanks. Um, I'll just make a comment in response to that last question. The traditional Aboriginal custom of welcome to country involved um, having the local laws explained to you and if you accepted that you would obey those laws while you were on that country, Mm. the Aboriginal people whose country you you were on in return promised to look after you and if you died while you're on their country, they promised to return your body to where it belonged, back to your people. Mm. And I think that's part of the extension of warmth and mm. um, assimilation mm. that was a natural thing for Aboriginal people to do. Mm. Uh, they weren't threatened by an individual, mm. so they took them in. Mm. Um, and that's why the welcome to country and acknowledgement of country contemporary practice of today is so important in maintaining that tradition. I think that's it, Ken. Thanks very much. Um, I have a question because I'm looking at um, the the white lady and the black man. Um, I'm a fiction writer. And I had a little bit of success with a fiction, piece of fiction about an Aboriginal father who takes his daughter back to country. And I was telling a friend about this piece just recently and she said, whoa, whoa, hang on a second. She said, how can you, me, a white woman, I'd love to have um, Noongar blood but I don't, um, um, that I know of, um, how can you write about a black man and a black man's world, you know. Um, and uh, I thought, I, I, I felt quite affronted and I thought, but it's fiction, I'm making it up. And my question, I suppose, is how do you feel that there's people like me out there who are imagining a, a different world and should we do that kind of thing or should we sit and talk with elders? Well, look, for me, I mean, I can only speak for myself. I mean, I'd rather the more people telling stories, the better. Myself, personally, I mean, I can, as I said, I can only speak for myself. I mean, you hear that a lot of this from history as well, and certainly in recent decades, that only Aboriginal people can write Aboriginal history. I think it's a mistake for me to go down that path, I mean, to, to, to close that off. And I think we need as many people. I mean, I can certainly critique um, a piece of history or a story that's been told by someone, I've got no problem with that. I mean, I might disagree with what you've written, but happy for you to get it out there and then I can I can question it. But to lock it off and say no, I think is a mistake. I mean, I think, I mean, I'm sure Ray would say the same. We've suffered enough from segregation in the past. It doesn't work <laughs> from our experience. And I think um, stories need to be told. And as I said, it's, um, uh, get them out there. And as I said, we may we may question it. But I'm not speaking on behalf of all Aboriginal people in that regard. I have to say that. So there are people that may not, you know, agree with that. But um, certainly for me, I think it's important to get stories out there. Any thoughts? Well, um, it's an issue, of course, that I have to deal with as a non-Indigenous historian. And I, you know... I, I don't feel comfortable about representing the Indigenous experience as a non-Indigenous person myself. It isn't that I would say that um, there's a law against it or anything like that, um, but I'm aware that I haven't got the same experience and background to say, oh, this is what it's like. I, I still think it's important to try to imagine ourselves in the position of the other person. Mm. And that's, a, that's an important exercise. But just being aware of the limitations that um, not to the extent where I can't actually write any history except for the history of, like, myself. Um, 
but just being aware of the position that you write from and what, how, you know, it comes from a certain perspective. Mm. And I, I'd say that as a novelist that you're always writing from your own inner self anyway. I might just add a comment that uh, I think we suffer from the Marlo Morgan story of, mm. what was it, Mutant Ninja Turtles or something? <laughs> yeah, Mutant yeah, Ninja yeah. something. Um, That's right. But I think, uh, I think ultimately... We're, if we choose to be storytellers, then I think we've got to be uh, true to the to the craft. Um, I just think we've got to we've all got to be better, and uh, sometimes that's in question. And so, um, power to you. Uh, that's about all I can say. I think we've got one question from up the front, John. People can't hear you. What you're saying. In respect to the last person's question, the deepest exposition of that complex conundrum is in the end of the last chapter of the book Journey to the Interior by Nicholas Rothwell, published about five years ago. And then, and he's one of our leading novelists, and he goes into that whole moral, ethical question with respect to the role of the novel and how it emerged particularly in the, in the 19th century and what it represents now. So read that book and then it'll answer, t at least it will give you something to think about in terms of how a white person can do that or not. Mm. All right. Um, well, I think that's time to draw it to an end. Um, on your behalf, I'm going to thank our authors, John Maynard and Vicky, Victoria Haskins. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation from the 2017 Newcastle Writers' Festival. We hope you can join us this year from Friday, April the 6th to the 8th. We have 130 of Australia's best writers coming to town ready to share their ideas and insights. For more information, please visit newcastlewritersfestival.org.au.